Welcome to Round Rock Church of Christ. We're glad you're listening. If you're in the Austin area, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday at 8.30 or 10 a.m. Or you can check us out and watch online at roundrockchurch.us. May God bless you as you seek Him, and may He use this message to give you exactly what you need. Good morning. I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, and verse 15. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. This is the word of the Lord this morning, church. We say amen. Amen. Let me pray for us before we sit down. So Lord, um, as we uh, approach your word, we recognize you as the creator and sustainer. So Lord, with these words right now, can you create an imagination, a heart, and a hunger in us for the work that you have set before us? Can we find the joy in it? We pray this in your son's name. Amen. NBC Church. Thank you for reading that this morning, Kathy. Uh, We have been in a series in which uh, we have called it uh, Make Yourself at Home. And uh, someone saw these this morning. They were like, ooh, it's Magic Trick Sunday. And uh, there's no magic that's going to happen with these two items, I promise you. So um, I'm just going to let the expectation uh, be very low this morning. We've been in this series of Make Yourself at Home because we've been talking about in August how we want to focus on being Jesus followers who are spirit-filled and spirit-led for those who do not have a home or are far from home. And this series kind of originated from before we start to lean into this work in August, the first question is, how are we doing with the place that we call our church home or the place that we're thinking about calling our church home. And in these four weeks, we've covered a couple of different topics. Uh, The first one being uh, in week one, we talked about place. So we talked about how it is important if you are a Jesus follower to actually be grounded in a place where you are training and being attentive to the presence of Jesus. In the second week, we talked about how important it is to have people, people that you know and also people who know you and what the Spirit of God is doing in you. Week three, we talked about practices, how when we come, we not just attend when we gather with the body of Christ, but we also enter into these practices, these practices that may be new for some of us, but very old to the Christian faith, in ways that we actually open ourselves up to the Spirit of God, the power and the presence of God together. And then this week, we're talking about purpose. Part of making yourself at home is knowing what your God-given purpose is and also leaning into it, not just individually, but also collectively. And this morning, um, 
as I was preparing for Sunday, I felt like uh, I think we can hit three topics that will get to uh, your purpose. Uh, and here's what it is. I think if we talk about a chocolate bar, if we talk about a garden, and um, we talk about the new Barbie movie that's coming out, I think we can get to your purpose, okay? I, that's a promise, okay? That's a Zane Witcher promise. I will hand those out very often. I think if we touch those three things, we'll get to your purpose, and we'll ask a couple questions with it. Are we ready to go? Okay, all right, a couple of people are ready to go. Uh, let's start with the thing that your parents would never let you do, dessert first. Um, there is a uh, company that is well-known. If you have ever endured the month of October, you are probably familiar with the Hershey Company. They are a flagship company. They have been around for a long time. They've been around since 1984. and That's not right. It, they've been around a lot longer than 1984. I'm going to have to check my facts on that. It, it's back in the... I'm not even going to try, all right? They've been around a long time. You should know that. Um, <laughs> and uh, this company uh, that everyone tends to know uh, is really great for a lot of things, but a lot of people don't know the story of one of its greatest moments that actually was with the creator of the Hershey Company, Milton Hershey, who was one that actually brought his business all the way through the Great Depression, one of these economic downturns, not only just made his company through it, but he actually thrived in life during it. In a time and season where in America, people were worried about even being able to keep their homes and being able to endure the economic impact, Milton Hershey actually thrived in a new way. When people in Pennsylvania were actually losing their jobs during this time, Milton Hershey actually hired more people to join his organization. When people were worried about losing their homes, he actually moved out of his home for other people to be in his home. And then when he hired more employees, he actually went out into the city because there was no more chocolate to be made during the Great Depression. He actually went out to the city and he hired people to actually start building homes. It was actually called the Great Building project. And within those five to six years, Milton Hershey had actually built homes. He had built a recreation center. He had actually built an open field stadium at great cost to himself. And at the age of 72, when you listen to interviews with Milton Hershey, he would tell you he did a lot of successful things. But one of the most successful things he did was build a home for other people on the back end of life. You ever thought about how there's something instinctual, important of building a home? If you go to Pennsylvania today and you hear this story, one of the things that they say is that uh, the place where he built his home and helped all the other people is the sweetest place on earth, which you think may be just a nod to it's the place where Hershey and the bar was actually designed. But people who live there know that it's a sweet place because there was someone who cared about their hometown and was willing to help them with their home. The Bible actually begins with describing a home, a sweet place. The word actually in Genesis is Eden. 
And when the scriptures first talk about God creating a home, it's almost as if God is building this temple. It's almost like Genesis reads in the first six days, just like a builder is slowly building a house by laying a foundation and then walls and then accessories all inside of it. And on day six, when God builds this house, this cosmos, this creation, you have this instruction that Kathy read this morning that happens in the garden. God creates humanity and tells humanity something through one human. In Genesis 2.15, it said, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and then to keep it. To work it and then to keep it. For humanity to dwell in the house of God means that humanity works it and keeps it. But what does it mean to work it and keep it? Does that mean we all become gardeners? How do we work it and keep it? I don't know what you feel or hear when you hear the word work, um, but it's probably dependent upon how you feel about the work that you have in your life right now. That work is either a good thing or a bad thing. And the Bible in the full trajectory of the story recognizes that when humanity distrusts God, when sin enters the world, that work actually becomes burdensome. That there's a sweat to the brow that comes with work. But in Genesis 2, this is before humanity ever mistrusts God. If it's before original sin, then this is God's original blessing. That work isn't to be something that is burdensome, but God actually has work that is a blessing for us if we see it that way. I, uh, I grew up in a, uh, uh, I grew up as a city boy for sure. There was way more city boy than country boy uh, in, in my soul. Uh, but I had grandparents that I stayed in the summers with, and they were, uh, they were farmers and gardeners. Um, and you could just tell that it was like, my goodness, we have to help this boy because he's about to be a city boy his entire life. So my parents would ship me over for the summer. And uh, there was just one thing uh, I made sure my grandparents never saw me do. And that was that I was never bored. If I got bored, my grandfather would see me. He'd look me in the eye and go, oh, oh, we don't have something to do. Oh, I'm going to put you to work. Translation, punishment. I never enjoyed the work. Never enjoyed it whatsoever. My grandmother, when she would see me not doing something, oh, you're bored. You're bored. It's time for you to actually do the work to keep your keep. To actually contribute something. Never be caught not working. You know, when Genesis paints work for us, it doesn't paint it like that. It doesn't paint it as work is punishment or work is about provision. When God gives humanity work, he gives it as purpose. That there's actually something waiting for us in the work that he gives to us. It's interesting that this word work, if you went back to the original words that were used to describe work, it's actually the same word as service. Humanity's purpose is service. Service to what? Service to God's home. 
But then you may ask the question, okay, what does service to God's home, to God's creation, to God's temple in which he has built, what does that actually look like? Well, we have not just one creation story, but two creation stories. And Christians have known that there are two creation stories. That does not panic anyone because both of them describe the nature of this God. And when you see the first story, you see that God tells humanity, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the birds, the fish, and every living creature that moves on the ground. In essence, it's as if God is saying, add to it. Contribute to it. Bring more people into it. Cultivate it. Not just physically, but culturally, socially. Build a home here. Not just that the home is done, but that the home needs more and is to be filled in it. Because God's not done with God's home. So now the Barbie movie. Is anyone uh, looking forward to seeing that this Friday? Yeah, y'all kind of seem more like an Oppenheimer crowd than you are a, a Barbie movie crowd, but the, the illustration needs this, okay? All right, so we're just going to roll with this. Uh, if you are planning to see the Barbie movie, uh, people are pumped about More people are going to show up to that movie than you think. And the reason is, is because they've kept it so under wraps of what the plot line to this movie. How do you make a movie about Barbie that's interesting? By not telling anyone what the movie's going to be about. And the only premise that you know of the movie so far, which is why so many people are going to go see it, is that it's actually going to be a spoof on Barbie. That Barbie is going to have to go through this ethical dilemma of do I stay in the Barbie world or do I move into the real world? Barbie has to ask the question, is there more to this world than what I know so far? Even in the commercials, it says, you know, Ken asked Barbie, you know, Barbie, what are you doing? I'm doing what I've been doing every single day. You know, just the casual things. I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just going to throw a house party uh, for a thousand different Barbies. I'm going to dance to the music every single night. And yesterday's going to be as good as tomorrow and as good as today. I guess why I say that is, is that I think when some of us hear the creation story, I think we hear it like we kind of hear the Barbie movie. Like that we think of God creates a world and this world is perfect and it's done. And all that we need to do in the world is that we kind of just arrange the different furniture that is in the house and that we just kind of dwell in it and we wait for God to show up later and take us from the house. I think this is why some of us actually ache in life. Is that we've made our lives like all about like, well, you know, life is just kind of moving some furniture around maybe saving up enough money to be able to go to a different room in the house. And then at some point, God's going to take me from this house and I'll be with him somewhere else. And that can be a fine life narrative. That's just not the narrative of the scripture. The scripture is actually that God creates a world that's not a finished project, but it's actually an ongoing project. That God actually desires for you to build something in the house that God gives you. That when we get discontent or when we get 
disengaged or disengruntled with our lives, sometimes it's because we've lost our focus. That's not about us making ourselves a home, but making a home for other people. And Genesis is actually very creative in revealing that God still wants you to do something and build something that is in this world. Right in the middle of this passage, you have this weird, strange detail in Genesis 2. When uh, God is just laying out the the world, the writer literally says uh, the name of the first river that flows from the garden. The name of the first river river is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold of that land that is good. Aramaic, raisin, and oxen that are also there. God lists all these random elements, and you're like, why does God include these random details? And close readers of Scripture have actually revealed to us that like, this is the Bible's way of saying the world's full of potential. That the world actually has raw resources around us that we are actually to use. If Genesis were to describe the story of God, it wouldn't be like a Barbie house where everything is just finished and you're moving around the furniture, but that it's actually a life of Legos, that you're to build something with it. I once had a parent tell me that, uh, you know, Legos, there's, a, there's pain, there's excruciating pain, and then there's the pain of stepping on a Lego. And that feels very right. That feels right to me. But when Genesis tells the story of God, it's that we are to build with the things that are around us and also with the breath that is in us. It's an invitation of God. I have created this home. Can you create this home to welcome others? Because God says, I'm keeping it. I'm keeping it. You know, that may bring us to the second part, is that we work it and we keep it. You know, the God of the Bible has very much a Zillow history when it comes, I had someone say to me the other week, they're like, you know, I have this terrible addiction. I'm always looking up homes. Like I'm always looking up like different locations to be. I wanted to be like, so with God. The whole story of the Bible is actually God looking for a home, looking for a place to dwell. One of the places that we see this over and over again is that soon as humanity leaves the garden, the next expression of home bubbles up for God. God's like, hey, I'm going to travel with you. I need you to build this tabernacle, like this elaborate tent, and I'm actually going to dwell with you. And I can't get extremely deep into these details, but God's doing the same thing that God has been doing since the pages of Genesis 1. When God gives the instructions to the people who are actually hosting the tent, God uses the same language. You know, just as two examples, when the curtain is being described of the tabernacle, It actually says this is all the equipment used for the work of the tent. The exact same word in Genesis 2, work. And then in another place, when you find that, you know, the people that are responsible for keeping the tabernacle and the covenant of the law, keeping, same word used in Genesis, that God's mission is still the same, that God wants to build a home in which as many people can dwell with God as possible. That God is actually doing something here on the earth. You know, I came from a tradition that gave me a lot of rich, rich things to my faith. 
But I do remember there were times where it kind of felt like the story of God was uh, the earth was something that God was going to trash. Like the earth is something that we are putting up with right now until God actually takes us and moves us to somewhere else. I even remember, you know, singing songs that I, they're still rich to me. They're still meaningful. Um, but they would be songs of like, you know, when Jesus takes me home, what joy shall fill my soul? And then I remember going to school and learning that like some of the songs that were first written like that didn't actually have the language of take me home or remove me. You know, if you're a history person, it's worth researching that a lot of the writers earlier didn't talk about heaven being something that was far away that God took us to as much as heaven was something that came down and met earth. That God doesn't trash the world, but actually restores the world. That's part of God's plan for creation. That in Genesis 1, God creates this beautiful world. And at the end of the Bible, that God comes back to this beautiful world and ushers heaven in it. And the beautiful promise of Jesus is that as God's building that home, if you say yes to Jesus, the Spirit of God makes a home in you. In essence, in the words of the Scripture, you become like a mini temple. And in the words of Peter, when the living stones, when you and I come together, we actually build a home of God for people to walk into. I want you to think of when people walk into a church, it is as if they are walking into an open house of what heaven will be like one day. Now notice, I said one day. We're not perfect at it whatsoever. But when people experience the house of God, it should be this small piece of real estate that reveals what heaven is is like for people and that this God cares to dwell with them. When we live in that, we live into our purpose and we actually live into what God desires for us. So with each part of this message, I've kind of just given four questions just for us to ask ourselves when it comes to this home, like making ourselves at home. I've got four questions for us today of do we contribute to making this place a home? Here's four questions today. Uh, the first one is just simply this. Um, are we giving our skills to make this a place, a home for others? You know, in the Genesis story, there's an Old Testament scholar that actually says uh, that word subdue, one of like the better translations for that word may actually be exercise skilled mastery that God puts you on this planet to exercise skilled mastery. You know, I'm really sorry that sometimes we kind of convey in church that the major things that we need is preaching and people leading worship. Because that's not what is just needed for the people of God. Those things are good, but they're just a couple of things that we contribute when there is skilled mastery that we need. You know, Jesus apparently some way, somehow was actually skilled at the mastery of building. I want you to think about how the Son of God existed on the earth while there was suffering and pain and injustice going on. And if you just asked, where is Jesus? A decent amount of his life, 
he was building some type of furniture. Apparently, God saw it important that there are unique things that each of us should be skilled in and that we should contribute to our home, not just out in the world, but also should contribute in the church, in God's home. And I know for some of us, we may just be asking the question, you know, I, I don't really know what my skills are that I contribute to making a home for other people. And I guess just the one question I would tell you to ask is just, what do people ask you for advice about? What do people come to you and look for your opinion about? If you follow that breadcrumb trail, you may just find some of the skills that God's people need you to contribute. You know, the same question is, you know, are we giving what's been given to us for people to find a place in a home? For some of us, what's been given to us has been time. For others of us, we've been given relational ability to be able to talk to people. I wish I had that gift <laughs> extremely, uh, but like we've been given different things. Do we give those things back to God's home? Do we help with creating a home for other people? You know, there's a lot of different ways that we can contribute energy. I think one of them that we're really like, we're needing a ton of is we actually need a ton of people for this fall. We need some welcome home people. We need some people that have, we have some people that have stepped out. We need some people who will step in to be able to welcome people, to be able to say like, hey, you have a place here. You are recognized here. You know, and I also just want to recognize something that, you know, they tell preachers, don't touch this with a thousand foot, foot pole, and I'm going to touch it for a minute, um, is that one of the ways that you also help in building this as a home is financially. Like I, I was listening to someone the other day that was making a major financial commitment. And I said, what, what went into your discernment of it? And I'll never forget, this person was like, well, before we made the decision, I wanted to make sure that I could keep giving to our church and that I could keep supporting all of the people who are doing kingdom work. I think God honors that. That the church has had a long practice that we actually designate a small portion of our finances first to God before we even receive it ourselves. And it actually helps us to be able to run in ways consistently, but also creatively in helping reach out to people and giving people a home. I mean, even every week at this church, we have people who come to us that may never come in contact with you that need help with their home. And we help them financially. Do we give what's been given to us? The third one is, are we giving up our conveniences for this place to be a home for us? I had um, someone who was talking about they went to a church they'd never been to before, and it was an Eastern Orthodox church, which if you're unfamiliar with that language, that just means a church tradition that's been around for a long time. And uh, the person walked into the room, and uh, there were very few chairs in the room at all. And uh, most people had to sit or they had to stand the whole time. And uh, this person asked one of the church leaders later, he was like, hey, what, what's going on with no chairs in the room? Uh, and he, this is a choice, but he, he said, uh, we want to be very clear when people walk into this church that comfort is not our number one goal. So next week, Danny Holden's going to move out all the chairs. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> just play. That's not going to happen. Your chairs are still going to be here. I promise. Okay, Danny's not going to let that happen. 
But I think the point is helpful. To be reminded that like the number one goal of creating a home for those who don't know they can be at home with God is that number one thing is not our comfort. And when I first came to this church, this was one of the things that I was most impressed about. Like I know, and I know as soon as I say it, I'm going to rub some people the wrong way. Uh, like two services. I know that is hard for us. I know that is exhausting service-wise, but I actually heard that one of the reasons we first started doing two services is we said more seats for more stories. That seems to be a mentality of being focused on making a home for other people. And I know that a lot of us give up a lot of conveniences to do it, and it matters to us. And then the fourth and final question is, are we giving our attention to those who need to come home to God. You know, if we let it, the church will become, we won't like it, but the church will become like this furnace that slowly just kind of burns away and melts off our selfishness and our preferences and helps us to become other people focused. In a lot of ways, it's our chance to actually take our eyes off of ourselves and actually ask what we need for others. I think in a Netflix-built world, coming to church is the most countercultural thing you can do because it's the one thing in your world that isn't customized and personalized straight to you. I remember when I was um, serving at my previous church, there was a decision we were working through, and uh, the church knew there's a decision we were working through, and uh, one of the ladies in the church uh, did not want this decision whatsoever. Uh, so she came every Sunday and made the mission to make it clear to me. This was not the decision that she wanted. She let me know she'd be upset. You get the point. Okay. Uh, she'd let me know every single Sunday. And we get to the point, we make the decision that she does not like. It is not her preference. It is not uh, what she would desire. And uh, I don't hear a word from her. And as a minister, your first panic is, oh my gosh, they left. And then I remember coming the next Sunday and I saw her walking in there, and I was like, here we go. I'm going to get the talking to. And she walks right past me. I'm like, you're not going to mention anything about that decision? Like, nothing? Like, that's it? And I talked to another staff member. I was like, you know, she didn't say anything to me about it. And she goes, oh, well, you know why, right? I'm like, no. She goes, well, because the most important thing to her is her grandkids. And I knew she didn't have any extended family in this church. I was like, she didn't have any grandkids here. And I remember the staff member pointed to the youth group section and said, those, those are her grandkids. Here's about them the most. If the decision got made for some of them to come home with God, that's the most important thing. And she'll let it go. I remember me and her, we did not see eye to eye on very many things, but I had the deepest respect for her because she had her eyes on people who were either far from home or people who did not know that they were home yet. I think sometimes we just need to be reminded that we got to remember there are people who do not know that they can be at home with God. And part of our call is to make that home for them. The people who knew this the best was the one that literally said, my father has many rooms for you. Jesus literally left his home. He entered a womb. He made himself homeless. He dwelled and made his home. He tabernacled with humanity. And because he did it, it got him killed. 
he sacrificed himself for other people to know that they could be at home with God. And even though he was laid in a grave, and three days later he was raised as God's way of saying, there is a guaranteed home in my name. And the thing we have to remember is if Jesus could do that for each of us, we can do that for someone else as well. So God, I'm reminded of uh, your prayer that really is our purpose. Where you say, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, can you help us to be people who know our purpose, who can sense out our specific giftings that you have for us. And help us to have eyes for those who are far from home, who don't have a home yet. Pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.